Hi, everyone. Welcome to the IAMCR and Friends podcast. The International Association of Media and Communication Research is a global professional association of media and communication researchers, which is how I met my friend Duncan Kerber, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication, Popular Culture, and Film at Brock University. His research interests are in writing pedagogy, media and journalism history, and what we're going to be talking about today, crisis communication theory. And Duncan has a previous book from 2017 on crisis communication in Canada from the University of Toronto Press, and is currently working on a chapter for an upcoming book on social media and crisis communication. Welcome, Duncan. It's so nice to have you. Thanks for having me, Nicole. Well, today, I'm hoping you can tell us, how did you get into crisis communication research? Well, I get into it in a roundabout sort of way. It wasn't, uh, my PhD dissertation was not on crisis communication. It was actually on uh, media history in early Canada. Um, but I was teaching crisis communication uh, when I started full-time as a professor. And it just was such an interesting topic, and students just found it uh you know, interesting to them. And we had a lot of great debates about some of these cases. Obviously, crisis communication is when things go wrong and people tend to enjoy, uh, you know, debating and discussing these crises. And uh, so that's how I got into it, more as a teacher. Uh, but then I actually switched a lot of my, my research program towards crisis communication over the last five or six years. Um, and that book that, I, uh, that you mentioned earlier, uh, that is sort of a culmination of um, a lot of discussions that I've had with students over the years who are very social media savvy. Uh, and we, we've, we've tended to switch the course uh, that I teach every year to more of a social media crisis course, because there's just so many of these and students are so engaged with social media. Uh, so that's how really I've gotten into this topic. And I noticed that this particular piece that you're writing is on sports communication. Is that the area that you tend to be in or is this new for this project? Well, this is just an excerpt. So the, the conference paper that I submitted over the summer, uh, that's just an excerpt of one of the chapters that's on a broader topic uh, in crisis communication. Uh, but I felt for the uh, sport communication section of the conference, uh, that this would be suitable about the three athletes who faced social media crises of their own. These are now pretty famous athletes. So one of them has actually won the NHL Stanley Cup. Uh, and they faced social media crises when they were sort of starting out and getting uh, more well-known. Uh, and that just seemed interesting for this excerpt. But it's part of a, a larger chapter on, on the subject. Thank you, Duncan. So Duncan's IAMCR paper was titled Social Media Crisis Communication, The New Threat of Old Tweets to Professional Athletes' Reputations. So I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about this interesting line that you had in your paper. You said, the paper opens us up to new avenues in the study of social media and crisis communication by focusing on crises that are sparked solely online, a crisis of language that function as discursive breaks. So I'm hoping you can talk to us a little bit about what do you mean by discursive breaks and why is this essential to the evolution of crisis communication research? Well, when I was writing my last book, uh, crisis Communication in Canada from U of T Press. Um, most of the cases in the book are focused on things that happen in the real world. Um, and one of the angles that I was talking about is that every crisis you know, in the real world or online 
has a discursive element. So that's the idea that in any space, whether it's virtual or real, um, we have these things that we can do and say, or we have rules of things we cannot do or say. So that's kind of the discourse, or at least the way I see discourse. Um, and most of crisis communication research has focused on the offline or the, the real world. You know, when you're face to face with people, the crises that happen in those spaces, hurricanes, uh, you know, uh, floods, product failures, also politicians doing bad things, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but as I was writing that book, and that's what sparked uh, my next book on social media and, and crisis, I realized that the social media crisis is wholly discursive. There is no antecedent act or behavior or speech that happened out there in the real world. Uh, on social media, the crisis is something that was written on a tweet or it was an image or a video and it sparks and blows up right on the platform, right on, mm. on social media. But very few people have written about this and I'm not sure why. Uh, people tend to in crisis communication focus on social media as a tool. So when you have an offline crisis, you can use social media to connect people, to help people talk with other victims, um, to raise awareness of these bad things that happen offline. But the book that I'm working on is more focused on the crises that begin online. And, they, and to begin online means they have to be rooted in words, images, mm -hmm. videos. They're, they're, you, you know, in, in the book, I write a line about how you can't have a flood on Twitter. Uh, you know, a hurricane isn't going to bring water into your screen off Twitter, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? Uh, if someone punches somebody else in the real world, that's a crisis. I mean, it's an offline crisis. <coughs> nobody, can, nobody can punch you through Twitter, you know, or Facebook or something like that. So um, that really clarified my perspective on, on social media crises that are always online. And that raises all of these questions about discourse, because what is a crisis of words? What is a crisis of image? Well, it's all rooted in discourse. It's rooted in a community saying, you can't say this, mm -hmm. or this is beyond what we allow. It's a transgression. So all social media crises proper, you know, these are the ones mm -hmm. I'm talking about in the book, um, are some sort of word transgression. Now, the problem is every community has its own discourses. Every community decides what's right and wrong. And, and social media has opened up so many new communities that are still defining, you know, their, their discourses, like they're defining their values. And so a lot of crises <laughs> nowadays are, are in that process of people uh, debating and discussing and saying, no, that's wrong. This is right. Or what you said is, is, is wrong or what you posted or what the video you posted is wrong. Um, so it creates so many new opportunities for crisis types to pop up that we've never seen before. What I find really fascinating about your work, Duncan, is this idea that Facebook and Twitter are still fairly new. And so what's happening is young people are going and posting things and it's coming back. And you talk about this as like a recontextualization of old social media with this intent for a crisis or, or damage that needs crisis management. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about this, uh, the case studies that you decided to focus on, tell us a little bit about that and how the young nature of the participants when they first 
post the things plays into this. Well, in this paper for the conference, I focused on on three uh, athletes. Uh, there was an American baseball pitcher, Josh Hader. There was an NFL quarterback, Kyler Murray. And, and I mentioned the Stanley Cup winner earlier, the NHL hockey goaltender, uh, Jordan Bennington. Uh, and so all three of them had posted things to Twitter long before they were famous, like before really anybody knew who they were. And they were uh, they pretty had, young too when they did it. Uh, 16, 17 years yeah. old. I mean, they were teenagers. They had posted these things. I don't know about uh, you, but I didn't have social media to post to. <laughs> we had ICQ, but they, there wasn't an archival record of yeah. nonsense we posted. Yeah, I'm old enough that I lived, you know, pretty much the first half of my life without this threat. Yes. You know, without social media. Um, so I've been able as an adult to avoid some of these things. But yeah, these three were... You know, when they were teenagers, they were writing things on Twitter that were offensive. Uh, they were they were not good things to write, um, but they went on. They became famous athletes, and then it's interesting that people do what I call in the chapter um, tweet archaeology. So they go back to these famous people's uh, you know archives of their Twitter accounts or Facebook accounts if they're public. And they try to find things that are offensive, you know, and then they post them. And then a lot of news organizations will write about the scandal of they said these awful things from 10 years ago. Um, and, and that's one type of social media crisis, tweet archaeology. And I talk about that in, in this book I'm working on is the recontextualization of old social media content. Uh, and and for the intention of hurting these people. Um, and so the interesting thing, as I mentioned, discourses, discourses change over time. So the things that we would were attending to in society, right and wrong and and things like that, 10 years ago are different now. So these posts that they wrote, uh, they were not famous at the time, these these three men. Uh, so probably nobody was watching. Uh, maybe just their friends were watching their Twitter accounts. But also probably the things they wrote 10 years ago, they could get away with 10 years ago. People didn't care as much about these comments as they would now. So they were posting in a very different context, but it's coming back to bite them uh, many years later. Uh, for the In this case, and in other cases, there's also, for example, outside sports, maybe uh, your listeners uh, remember a few years ago, Kevin Hart. Uh, the famous comedian and actor mm. who often does uh, funny movies with uh, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, he was uh, hired to host the Oscars, you know, the Academy Awards. And once the news broke that he was hired and, and there was a lot of praise, you know, as a, as a Black comedian, Black actor hosting the Oscars, suddenly people did tweet archaeology and they went back and they found uh, uh, tweets that they called homophobic, uh, jokes that he had written. He's a comedian. He writes jokes and he had these jokes that were recontextualized today. They were just sitting on his Twitter account for seven or eight years and he had to resign. Uh, there was a big crisis surrounding that and the Oscars had to deal with this. It was, it was a black eye on the Oscars. And eventually that year, the Oscars chose to have no host, which was quite mm -hmm. unusual not to have a host. So it can happen not just in sports. Uh, it can happen to to anyone as well uh, in any field. And also <laughs> there's cases of just regular people 
yeah. everyday people who it struck are me as something that we all stuff. need to be more mindful of. <laughs> it made me think maybe I should go back through my tweet history and yeah. look at that. For I, I mean, I've never, I've definitely never tweeted anything like what Josh Hader tweeted, uh, and yeah. I think that sometimes that may be a point of reflexivity for people as well. Yeah. Well, some people are going back, they're deleting things, or there was one political candidate uh, in Vancouver, I believe it was, who who just mass deleted everything. You can you can find tools yeah. on the internet to just delete all your tweets. Now, then it raises some suspicions of why mm -hmm. did you delete your tweets? And also there's always uh, people who screenshot. So, you know, if yes. you have any enemies out there, uh, they, they might've already screenshotted it and they'll just have it on their hard drive for when, you know, they need it. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, uh, you know, ascend to some position in then your they'll career, have yeah, they they'll have that and they can use it. So yeah, you can delete your tweets, but uh, you know, there's always someone out there, at least for, for people who are growing in fame that, uh, probably will have it somewhere screenshotted and then you're still going to have to deal with it later. The other thing is we don't really know in the next 10 years, for example, like in 2032, we don't know what the discourses are going to be. You know, what are we attending to in 10 yes. years as a society? So there's things that may be totally innocuous you have on your Twitter account right now that in 10 years will will look bad and it just it's a never-ending thing that we can we can never really know what's going to offend in 10 years now some people will say well some of these tweets that these guys put up there you know they they were bad 10 years ago um kevin yes. hart's tweet uh, was a joke a homophobic joke um about his you know if his son i think the, the one key tweet he said was if his son you know brought home a dollhouse to play with he you know kevin would smash it you know he doesn't mm -hmm. want his son playing with a dollhouse and stuff like that so uh you know and then he he said something like you know that's gay um so you know that obviously i mean it wasn't like just something innocuous he was actually making you know bad joke um mm -hmm. but what i argue in the in the chapter and then in in, in the book is that Back then, nobody was policing those kind of comments. I mean, we've had changes in the way we, uh, you know, we look at these kind of comments. We have more people online now watching for those kind of negative comments. So there's way more policing now online. So probably Kevin Hart wouldn't write that today. Um, but back then, you know, you could get away with it. It wasn't a big deal. Some people would have laughed, you know, and just moved on with it. Mm -hmm. But now it's very serious. But what it, what about 10 years from now? What's going to be serious? If I, you know, if there's someone who, uh, you know, in 10 years, you know, a group has created some cause that's important to them. And I posted something today that maybe goes against that. Would that be um, a transgression? Would that be beyond the discourse? I don't know. That's that's the challenge with this this idea of tweet archaeology. And if you can't predict the discursive nature of ten years from now, Duncan, yeah. what can young people who are in high school or college and university do to help protect their image, as they don't know if they're going to be famous yeah. later? Well, there's some people that just don't engage with social media. They only use it when they need it as a marketing tool, you know, or as a public relations tool. Uh, I would probably suggest young people. Don't, you know, put everything on it. Don't uh, use it as just a sounding board. I mean, if you want to have a sounding board, just speak to your friends personally. <laughs> if you want to throw things out there. 
but I don't think even young people can ever protect themselves completely from this. If they, if they engage at all in social media, I think there's always a chance something will be saved, you know, and come back to haunt them later. You just, I think it's more in the book. I'm making an argument that all of us need to stop policing. All of us need to stop taking social media crises so seriously. That's an argument that I make in the book. So it's more of a, an education. It's more of a trying to get an argument to convince people that we shouldn't jump. You know, somebody posts something, you shouldn't fire your employee mm-hmm. right away. <laughs> like, yes. I mean, some of these firings can be a culmination of a lot of different things. So maybe there was problems with the employee and, and this was the final straw, but uh, you know, if you've got a good employee and they, you know, they write, they wrote something 10 years ago. Uh, I, I actually, uh, if I was advising employers, I would just say, ignore the the people online who are complaining about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I argue in the book too, in another chapter, not in this chapter, but in another one that the impact of all of this is hard to tell anyways, but there's a knee jerk reaction amongst organizations to just fire, fire people, get rid of them. <laughs> so, so in, the my, in my professional practice, before I re-entered into academia, I was in public relations. And one of the things we used to tell our clients is if you, if there's a crisis, you are transparent, you're honest, and you apologize. Yeah. Is that still the case? Well, in the chapter, I, I alluded to this, but in the greater book, I talk more about it. And that is the idea that we've almost made it a moot point to even think about crisis communication and social media crisis, because few people get a chance to apologize at all. I mean, in all the crisis communication textbooks, there's a section on response strategies. And the key one is apology, And right? And, but the pr- thing with apology is the audience, the public has to, has to allow you to apologize, has to accept an apology. And in a lot of social media crises, um, there is no chance to apologize at all for some of these people. Like there's no chance to say, I was wrong. You know, this was bad. Can I still have my job? You know, can I still, can I still do this? Like, why couldn't Kevin Hart just apologize uh, and then host the Oscars? I mean, I, I don't see a problem with that. I don't think mm-hmm. he needs to resign. I don't think he needs to be fired or, <laughs> or whatever. So um, that's the issue with social media crises today is public relations. People don't even have a chance to do this or, or the person in crisis doesn't have a chance to do this. Um, and we've rendered response almost completely moot point anymore uh so we don't even need those chapters in the textbook Mm -hmm. because you're not even going to be allowed to apologize and i I equate this sometimes to baseball in baseball you get three strikes uh in social media crises many of these people they posted bad things they they don't even get a chance to take a swing they don't even get a chance to make Mm -hmm. an apology at all and they're just within hours there's been people who within hours of a bad tweet are gone you yes. know, they're fired and or removed book, from I'm, Twitter entirely. <laughs> yeah. Or Twitter takes them off and that kind of thing. And then we're finding out later as context changes, as we've seen with some of the COVID tweets that people got suspended for as context changes later and people go, you know what, what the person said a year ago, you know, that's actually truth now. <laughs> and, and they were, they were suspended by Twitter mm-hmm. for something that now would be okay kind of yes. the reverse, right? It would be 
So the discursive I mean, nature has changed. Well, yeah. thank you very, very much. Uh, that is Duncan Korber, and he is talking to us about social media and crisis communication. We're really looking forward to this book release and hope that you'll share that date with us when you get more. Uh, note to everyone who is listening, there are more IAMCR and Friends podcasts available on Apple and Spotify. Thank you again for joining us today, Duncan. Thanks a lot.